Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Olivia Humbrecht is a 12th generation Alsatian winemaker with a global reputation. He was still in his 20s when he took over at Domains in Humbrecht, the year he also passed the Master of Wine exam, and has taken it to new heights, using biodynamic practices in his 42 hectares of vineyard. Listen to us chat about soil types, climate change, the differences between Protestant and Catholic styles of wines, and why he loves holidays in Scotland. Hi, Olivia, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Tim. And you're presumably in Alsace, aren't you, because you're in the middle of the harvest right now? We started two weeks ago, we're right in the middle, so I'm sitting in my office in the middle of the winery. <laughs> and so it. can you hear trucks arriving with grapes or not? No, actually, today we stopped harvesting because we did all our earlier grapes, like the Pinots and all that, and we're waiting for our Riesling, but we will restart the harvest next week. Yeah, and so this is a pretty early harvest for you, isn't it, Started, starting in August? We started the 22nd, which is the earliest starting date we've ever seen in the estate, yes. Wow, that's pre- is that a bit scary for you? Yes and no, yes mm. and no. There is a... Obviously, advantage to start early. You know, it's more agreeable to harvest under sunshine than under the snow and the wind in November. <laughs> I mean, can you remember harvesting in November sometimes? Yes, I do. 1999, we finished the harvest on November 19th, and it was snowing. Wow. And was that with sweet wines, with sort of an Stephen? Yeah, it was at the time, uh, yes, uh, late harvest style wines. Yeah. So November the 19th, and it was snowing. That's unbelievable, it was. isn't it? <laughs> well, those were the days. Those were the days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Listen, I want to ask you a bit about your your family because you're both a second generation winemaker in one sense, but also a twelfth generation winemaker. Can you just tell us a little bit about how your domain, Domains in Humbrecht, was created in 1959? Well, actually, my father, uh, when he took over from my grandfather, uh, he had very little vineyard, and he managed to put together, uh, marrying my mother, Zind. Uh, a small estate of about five hectares. Mm-hmm. He was a terroir collector and he started to buy vineyards a little bit everywhere in, in Alsace and grew up the, the domain. Before mm-hmm. that, my grandfather, he was making uh, wine that he was selling bulk to the local négociant whose job was to blend and you know market the wine. Mm-hmm. So my father, yeah, he kind of created domains in Nobrecht the way it is organized today, making the wine, selling the wine and so on. But, but on his side of the family, the Humbrich side, it goes back to, what, the 1680s, I think, don't you? Uh, 1620, because something terrible happened in the region called the Thirty Years' War, and the Alsace region was completely uh, uh, destroyed uh, at the beginning of the 17th century. So we have no, absolutely no record of what's happening. And if you look at the history of most uh, Alsace old uh, wine families, mm-hmm. they all go back to the beginning of the 17th century, and no one goes uh, beyond that. I mean, not the first time that Alsace was affected by war. You know, it's been German, it's been French, it's, it's been moved backwards and forwards between the two, in a sense, isn't it? We had what we can call a hectic past, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but you're very much French now. Does anybody in Alsace feel German? 
Not at all. Not at all. No, we, we are French, absolutely. But we, we also like our neighbors a lot. And in fact, in our region, which is like a small little cosmopolitan area between the northern part of Switzerland, you know, the, the Basel district, and the, the, the Freiburg, Baden region on the other side of the Rhine River, we call ourselves the, the, the tree region. And and we share almost the same local dialect, you know, uh, Alsatian, uh, uh, Basler accent, and and uh, Freiburg. Uh, it, we can speak together with our local uh, uh, accents. Well, and some of the producers in Baden have vineyards in Alsace, don't they, and cross over into Alsace yes, to make yes, wine. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's also the case in the northern part of uh, Alsace, because some German wine growers have a vineyard in uh, in France. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is unusual, isn't it? Crossing the border. I'll let you imagine how difficult it is for the customs officers to sort out that kind of situation. I love it. I mean, so, you you know, were you ever going to be anything else if you're the 12th generation winemaker? Did you always want to be a winemaker? Um, I've been asked this question quite a few times, and I can't remember when I decided to be a winemaker. Probably it was way, way before I could even think. You know, it's, Mm. it's, it's something I always say when you're born on an estate or a farm or a winery, and you, and you cultivate the land, you have this attachment to the soil, which is something which breathes in your guts. Yeah. You know? And only someone who is from a family that owns uh, an estate or a land can understand that. Yeah. It's something you just don't want to let go. You know? Yeah. I and mean, what were your first memories of wine? Was it working in the cellar with your grandfather or your dad or things like that? I, I can't remember. I can't remember. I mean, <laughs> it probably would go back to kindergarten. There was, you know... Uh, <laughs> Going and help a little bit, trying to cut some grapes or something like that, and then yeah. then you start to do all the, the kids' job in summer, and you'd spend most of your summers if you're not on holidays or yeah. doing a, a, a job somewhere, uh, yeah. helping your parents. Mm-hmm. Even sometimes, I mean, uh, my generation, uh, my, my parents' generation, they they were working every Saturday. Mm-hmm. Weekend was only the the Sunday. You know? Yeah. So during uh, uh, the school, uh, you know, uh, mid midweek uh, uh, holiday or Saturday, you'd help your parents. Yeah. I mean, I mean, your dad was something of a pioneer. I mean, you've been too, of course, in Alsace. But, I mean, what were the sort of things that your dad brought into the region? Well, he he was a very curious man. He still is, uh, I should say. And he always tried to figure out what made the region famous and interesting in the past. Yeah. And that's why... He, drove him to, to acquire some vineyards that were in an absolute crazy condition just because people spoke about it in the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th century. You know? And uh, I have to say, Alsace went through some difficult time uh, during the 20th century, you know, starting with the phylloxera disease, different wars and all that. And just to give you a number, uh, the size of the wine region was only 6,000 hectares in 1945. Wow. Alsace size was 30,000 hectares in the midst of the 17th century, which was what we call the golden period of the region, you know, yeah. where all the villages, as you can see them today, were built and, and yeah. constructed. So you see that slow decline to the end of the Second World War. And then others got rebuilt again in the 60s and 70s yeah. to reach today about 16,000 uh, uh, hectares, which is only half what it was uh, three or 400 years yeah. ago. 
Yeah, I mean, you've always seemed to have a very good relationship with your dad. That's not always true of fathers and sons who work in wineries together. I mean, well, it, it's 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 not always easy. I can see that with my son today, you know. <laughs> and uh, but I have to say, and uh, my father gave me a great lesson, and basically said, "Here are the keys. You're in charge now. I'm here mm. to help and advise if you need me, but you're in charge." That's what I'm doing with my son also. You know? Mm. That's why I'm ending all these, doing all the administrative work today. <laughs> and talking to, to people like me. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your dad also, as you've mentioned this, acquired a lot of vineyards, didn't he? I mean, and was, there, was there a method to it? Did he want to acquire specific sites or did he just see anything that was half good he would buy it? You know, back in the 50s and 60s, the, the region was divided into two groups. You had people who cultivate the soil, produce grapes, very often not even producing the wine or just make bulk wine and sell it to someone who would do all the marketing, the sale, the blend and all that. And very often the people who were producing the bulk wine would not see the customers and talk to them. They couldn't see their passion into drinking good wine. You know? My father was lucky because my other grandfather, Zind, he didn't come from a very long uh, you know, uh, history of uh, uh, winemakers and, and viticulturists. Mm. He started maybe to make wine uh, just before Second World War. But what he did in 1945, he bottled everything himself and tried okay. to sell it directly. Yeah. And that was probably also something extremely uh, eye-opening for my father to see, mm. yeah, you can make wine, but if you make effort to make good wines, you want to you wanna bottle it yourself. You want to yeah. sell it yourself. You, know, you don't want to see your product being blended or mixed with something else. Mm. And so as of 59, my father also started to bottle uh, almost everything uh, uh, himself. And that was rare among small wine growers. That was very early, yeah. wasn't it? Looking Loire in Champagne, in Burgundy, yeah. uh, nearby uh, vineyards. Most uh, small wine producers would not bottle themselves uh, no. the, wines and being able to bottle the wine talk to people trying to explain to them the difference between wine that come from Gebershwe where my father's come mm. from or Bindenheim where my mother's come from mm. just comparing the two single vineyards from these two villages it made him curious to find all the places you know mm. and in those days in the 60s was the beginning of mechanization for the good and the bad but it allowed wine growers to go a bit further away from the winery you know when you mm. when you go to your vineyard with your horse uh, pulling your plow, mm. you, you don't do 10 miles to go mm. to your vineyard. Mm. You can't. It's mm. too far away. But mm. with mechanization, wine growers could, were able to go further down. And by reading books, mm. if I take the, the example of the Rhine, for example, mm. it was just purely by reading books. It, it, mm. Every old history book on Alvas wine you read, they speak about this vineyard. Mm. So he thought, well, you know, you, you, one vineyard can be maybe famous one day because someone famous mm. is making the wine there. But this is very mm. ephemeral. It doesn't last generations mm. or centuries. You know? mm. So for a vineyard to be uh, always uh, mentioned in every single book from the 11th century, as far as you can go in Alvas mm. to, to recently, there must be something there which is beyond yeah. just the, the quality of the people uh, taking care of the vineyard. And that's what the kind of vineyard he was looking for. And were those vineyards comparatively cheap in those days? Yes, yes. That's why I'm very jealous because today's not the case. Uh, I remember a story my father told me um, to, to, 
in order to, to get some valley floor vineyards, he was obliged to buy land in what would become a future Grand Cru called the Hengst. <laughs> of course, he was very happy with that. He yeah. tell the, the person selling the vineyards that actually he wanted the future Grand Cru find yeah. and not the valley floor. Yeah. But um, in the 60s, 70s, valley floor vineyards were easier to work, yielding more grapes, and were much more profitable. You know, then hillside vineyard that needed much more work, smaller yeah. yield, yeah, to make wines and, and, and you know, uh, try to sell them at a, yeah. at a higher price was difficult back in the 60s, 70s. So, yes, the door was open to buy fantastic vineyard during that period. Yeah. Interesting. And like you always told me, when mm. you're the first person who walks into a restaurant, you choose the best table with mm. the nicest view. You know, <laughs> when you're the first one to buy into a Grand Cru, well, you have the same possibility. Mm. Uh, uh, 40, 50 years later, if you try to buy a vineyard in a Grand Cru, mm. very often you end up with what's available would be, you know, the side near the forest <laughs> in the bottom or yeah. bits and other people don't want to buy. Yeah, interesting. I mean, you, you took over the domain very young, didn't you, in 1989, in your, in your mid-20s, which is also the year, amazingly, you passed the Master of Wine exam. Um I mean, phenomenally young in both cases. Um, was it a bit scary when you took over this famous, what was becoming even by then a famous domain? Yes, I know, but I didn't realize because I was, um, uh, I was probably crazy. Uh, today, <laughs> I thought, did a few things where, where today I would think twice, obviously, but when you're young, you don't, you don't bother about those things, you know? And my parents uh, uh, let us do, I say let us because... I was with my wife, uh, uh, Margaret, uh, which also helped me a lot, I have to say. But we were young and crazy and insouciant, you know, yeah. I say in French. Yeah. So, um, insouciant means you, you were carefree, really. Yeah. Yeah, carefree. Yeah. yeah. And we, we uh, didn't, didn't think about how we're going to pay, how we're going to do this and all that. You yeah. know, uh, we thought, all right, mommy and daddy is going to sort out the financial problems. And we just went for it. You know, and it was also a, a period of uh, where people would worry less, maybe even today. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So um, you're a bit more daring into mm. what you would try to attempt to do. Mm. Just tell us a little bit about about Alsace. I mean, about the climate of Alsace. Cause it's a very unusual climate that, even though it's in sort of northeastern France, it's very dry, isn't it? Just tell us a little bit about the climatic influences. Well, Alsace is the only uh, semi-continental climate you can find in France. We're far away from uh, any ocean, uh, the North Sea or the Mediterranean or the Atlantic. And we're also protected by the Vosges Mountains, which kind of range between 3,000 feet. I always like to remember people in the UK that the tallest mountain in Alsace is just a few meters taller than the Ben Nevis that we have in the UK. <laughs> uh, but it has a very uh, a strong impact on our climate because that mid-range of mountain stops a lot of cloud that come from the, the west, which creates a shadow effect that you see in many, many other countries in the, in the world, which makes Alsace extremely dry. Hmm. And this um, uh, continental climate is getting more extreme, you know, uh, with, with very high temperatures in, uh, uh, in summer, still some cold in, uh, uh, in winter, and a rainfall, an average rainfall, which is today the lowest in France. Colmar is, for the past 10 years, the driest time in France. So Colmar is drier than Perpignan, Marseille, yes. is it? Yeah. yeah, it used to be Perpignan number one, now yeah. Perpignan is number two. 
Yeah, wow. And, and what about soil types? I mean, I, I read somewhere that, that Alsace is home to every major rock type in the world, isn't it? I mean, you've even got this series of wines you name after them. So you've got Roche Granitique and Roche Calcaire and Roche Roulée uh, and Roche Volcanique, yeah? Mm. Um, is it true that you can find everything? I mean, it's this amazing mosaic, isn't it, of soil? Well, it's probably a few extremely rare type of soils uh, which you cannot find, or some might be actually in very small proportion. We, we do have slate in Alsace, but it's, it's not like in the Mosul. The slate only represents uh, a couple of percent of the total uh, uh, soil you can find uh, in the region. You know? We also have basalt, for example, this tiny, tiny little spot. Basically, the, 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 the two major soils we have are you know, uh, primary area soils, which we can find sandstone, granite, uh, nice, these kind of soils, very acidic, hard rocks, steep. Uh, and, and the Vosges are granitic, aren't they? You mostly find Riesling. Yeah, that's the Vosges Vosge mountain yeah. vineyard, if you want. Mm. And then attached to the Vosges mountains, you have all the different uh, uh, limestone layers mm. that can go from young to all this. I'm not going to be, in, uh, going to be uh, an agronomist talking mm. to you, but mm. there are a few uh, interesting differences. You know, yeah. It's like you're in Burgundy with the red limestone, mm. the white limestone. Mm. Here we have even more uh, variation than that, uh, mostly based on the content of free lime uh, clay. Yeah. Uh, and then you add the, the slope, the exposition, south, the altitude. It creates a mosaic of um, mm. uh, combinations. Uh, which is, yeah, probably for the small region we are, it, it, it's, a, it's a vast uh, uh, geological uh, display. I, I mean, I, I would say the most complex geologically in France, wouldn't you? I mean, more complex than Burgundy. I know Burgundy would probably disagree with me. I like the fact you use the word complex because a lot of mm. people say it's complicated. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, this complexity of soil is fantastic when you're trying to make wines that show a specific character. Mm. And we do have grape varieties, probably Riesling in front of any other one, mm. which is so capable to reflect, you know, mm. soil variations and climate variations. Mm. And it's fantastic to play with that. But it also creates uh, a, a, such a, a display, uh, a diversity of mm. wine that can sometimes be a bit confusing for mm. uh, a lot of people. Yeah, I wonder that whether it's sometimes a bit of a problem almost. That Alsace, I mean, Alsace in one sense is very is very simple in that you just get the name of the grape variety on the label and very often the vineyard or the village or whatever or the town. Um, but also underneath that, there's this incredible diversity of styles, isn't it, going on? Yes, it's, it's, it's much more than in any other region in the world. And obviously climate... Uh, location uh, in Alsace, um, uh, grape variety are the major keys to understand a wine. And uh, a Riesling will have a totally different character from a Gewurz, regardless mm. of the vineyard where it comes from. Mm. But if you look into more finer details into a wine, within one grape variety, you mm. can have uh, a lot of diversity of a style of wine, which is subtle differences that will be picked by people who really enjoy wine and uh, try to know a bit more about wines. I mean, because you've got, I think, now 42 hectares, 100 different vineyards in six villages, yeah, between Hunavir in the north and Tarn in the south. Um, do you ferment them all separately, all those vineyards? Yes, absolutely. Um, when a vineyard has a strong character and is capable to produce something which has a an iconic character and taste and uh, individuality, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, it's worth for me 
making it apart from the rest and not blending it together. You know, uh, it, it it it's it would be uh, it's like if you try to reduce biodiversity in the world. Yeah. Why why having so many different trees? Let's just have one. Be easy. Just oak trees. It's, it's, yeah, just one tree. And yeah. Even if it's a nice tree, it'll be boring. And for yeah. me, it's the same in the wine world. Mm. Diversity, being able to change and mm. compare, is is part of the intellectual pleasure mm. in drinking wines, mm. which is for me very very important. So if a vineyard has this capacity to leave an imprint on the wine, mm. I make it a part. Mm. But also technically, uh, you know, I said Aldas is very dry and sunny and all this, but there are uh, major differences in terms of precocity and, and ripening periods in the mm. region, even within the same grape variety. Mm. So, for example, you mentioned uh, a few places. Hunabir uh, uh, is a mm. very late ripening uh, area. Mm. Turkheim is very early. So, if I harvest my thing uh, in the brand, it probably would be uh, very often a week, sometimes 10 days before Hunabir. Uh, mm. mm. Technically, it's very difficult to blend them together. Mm. You know? At harvest I mean, time, I mean, it's interesting that some of your vineyards are monopoly holdings, aren't they? I'm thinking, you know, Clohoyser, Clojebsal, Clovinspool, but also you've got parts of vineyards where other people have them too. I, mean, I just wonder what the advantages and disadvantages are of, of having your own vines, you know, your own monopoly, as it were. Well, if you alone, it's probably more difficult to get well known because you you don't benefit from a kind of a group action from different wine growers doing also new promotion and uh, of a specific um, uh, vineyard. Sometimes uh, having a, a monopole means that you have a certain surface, you know, of uh, of land, so it minimizes um, problems you might have with neighbors also, and also it gives you more possibilities to blend or not within that vineyard. Mm. Uh, if I give you an example, uh, uh, if you only have one tiny little vineyard in one Grand Cru, let's mm. say uh, half an acre, mm. well, what can you do? It's, mm. You just have that, and it's good or it's bad. You, you, you cannot adapt the vineyard to a specific uh, climatic condition. When your vineyard is much bigger, it means probably the, the vineyard on the top of the hill might produce a more delicate, finer wine with higher acidity. The bottom part might produce something more powerful, more intense. Uh, maybe the part facing the south will be slightly riper than the part facing the east or, or something like that. Or, and, and having a larger uh, surface allows you within that vineyard to... Take or not take some parts, depending on what you want to create as a wine, also adapt to the vintage. You see? Yeah. yeah. And also, I mean, you've been working biodynamically since 1998 and you've been certified, I think, since 2002. It's much easier yes. for you to work biodynamically if, 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 if you haven't got neighbours, really, who are working conventionally, for example. Yes, absolutely. Um, a neighbour that uh, can cause problems if he's um, conventional in terms of, you know, uh, spraying products and all that. But today... I would say the problem is almost solved because uh, I think the latest statistics show that 30% of the, the, the vineyards are today are organic or dynamic or going towards in conversion to, to organic uh, cultivation. So you have less uh, problems um, uh, like that. And uh, many, many wine growers in Alvas, even if they're not certified organic, have uh, realized that the problem uh, you can get by using uh, hard chemicals. So the, the, the quantity of product used today, even in conventional vineyard in Alvas, is much lower. And, and that's the advantage of a dry climate, isn't it, working organically and biodynamically? 
I wouldn't have said dial 21 because we had a lot of rain <laughs> and uh, the mildew disease was uh, ferocious uh, last year. But you're right. Uh, uh, we do have a climate, generally speaking, uh, uh, is easier uh, for pandemic disease uh, uh, than maybe Bordeaux, uh, Champagne or places like that. So it's yeah. one little advantage uh, we have. Yeah. I mean, you, you once described your winemaking philosophy as, as, as low intervention. I mean, how does how is that reflected? I mean, you don't add yeast, do you? And you use larger yes. oak. Low intervention doesn't mean that we don't do anything. You know, it's it's it's. Uh, I, I see this term now being misused a lot by some people, and you just let things happen, and you end up by seeing vineyards that look like a uh, wild forest. Mm -hmm. You know. And so that's not exactly what I try to do. I still believe a vineyard is something that has to be cultivated. It doesn't have to be cleaned without any uh, plant growing into it. But there is a difference between something which is overworked and something which is never worked. And in the cellar, it's the same thing. Being able to not use classic enological products like yeast, for example, acidity, uh, sugar, if you need to chapterize and things like that, or fining and all these, you know, basic uh, work that uh, are used to make wine means you have to work very, very hard before that. So you don't need to use these things, you know. If you want to make a fruit pie and not add sugar to your pie, well, you need to buy very good fruits that are very ripe and very sweet. You know? yeah. it's, it's the same thing. So for me, if you can make a wine without using anything, it means, and the wine is good mm. and not faulty, mm. it means that you've done a, a tremendous and hard work uh, before. So that's what we're trying to do. And not having, not using any enological products means that you probably will respect more the character of the wine. You don't change it into something mm. which becomes standard and industrial. Mm. It's interesting. I remember we once had a conversation. You said the way to understand the different styles of Alsace was to look at the religion of the family that made it. And I think you said that Protestants make drier wines and Catholics make slightly more voluptuous and often wines with a little residual sugar. Is that? I know you were slightly joking, but I mean, has, how? Where do you see yourself? Because your style has changed a bit over the years, hasn't it? Yes. Um, that that quote was probably true, you know, in the past, mm -hmm. where you would have a, a very strong influence on the clergy, for example, on uh, the style of wine or something like that. And, uh, and I know someone who's actually writing a book now in Burgundy uh, on the, the different villages, the, the shape of the, the tower of the church <laughs> shows the character of the wine that made in the village. So. Yeah. I'll be very uh, curious to read that book one day. Yeah. And, and, but definitely uh, different religion, a different way of living, different villages have developed different culture and things like that, which or, or, or just the food also, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and all these probably have an influence on how you want to make a wine because a wine obviously shows the character of the soil, the climate, the grape variety used, all this. But it also shows the culture of the people, the, the, the cultural environment of whoever is making the wine. Mm. And that also reflects the period in, in, in the time, you know. Mm. Uh, I guess during a recession, maybe you don't make the wine the same way as if you're in a very flourishing period. You yeah. Know? yeah. Uh, uh, just an example. So, yeah, it, people used to say maybe wine made by Catholic would be more generous in style and Protestant would be maybe more leaner. Uh, but... I, 
that's not true today. Yeah, I wouldn't okay. even know amongst my colleagues uh, who, who is protesting yeah. or not or whatever. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what about your style? Because I think you, you used to make sweeter styles, the slightly yes, sweeter styles yes. and well, styles. Obviously, I always say to a lot of uh, uh, my friends, I say, you know, it's, it's pointless trying to make a wine that nobody wants to drink, even if it's a very good wine. Mm. Eventually, wine is destined to be consumed. Mm. And wine is consumed by people who live in a certain period, eat in a certain way, or use the wine in a certain way. You know? mm. So uh, today, I would say uh, olive oil has replaced the cream and the butter. Uh, lemon juice has replaced also a fatty product. People would eat more raw food, more delicate, less meat, uh, uh, more you know, vegetables and things like that. Dressings are more delicate. Uh, uh, you see now a lot of things on the plate, uh, uh, but more delicate. So wine also has to adapt to this uh, uh, evolution. Obviously, you don't want to make a wine that is not good mm. because you just want to change. Mm. You know? mm. So it's, it's the role of a, of a, of a winemaker and uh, a viticulturist to achieve to get the fruit that allows you to make a wine, which is also in demand. By the people, mm. you know, I'm sure 400 years ago, when, when or 300 years ago, 200 years ago, when French people would drink five liters of wine a day, <laughs> they probably didn't want to see a bottle of wine that had 14 percent alcohol, you know, so probably the wine in yeah. those days would be more like a strong beer, you know, six, seven, eight percent uh, uh, alcohol, you know. Yeah. Today it's the same thing. There's certain things that consumers don't want to see anymore. Uh, there is a preference for certain style of wine. There are obviously also maybe a fashion effect. Uh, I hope one day that uh, uh, sweet wine will come back into fashion. But my problem would be, can you still make them in the classic area that are producing sweet wines today in France? Is Sauterne capable to make sweet wines in 20, 30 years? Is Alvas capable to make sweet wines today or in 20 years? I say no, because <clears throat> there are, things have changed. Not mm. just the way people drink wine, but if you ask me today, Olivier, please, I need a lot of Vendange Tardive. In 22, please make a lot, because I need it. I said, Tim, I can't. We are early September, we're half through our harvest. Any vineyard I still have to harvest, if I keep them another two, three, or four weeks to get the kind of ripeness I need to make a sweet wine, I'll tell you, the wine will be sweet, it will be flat, it will have no acidity. It will not be good. Mm. And in September, Noble Rod doesn't develop like it used to develop like in yeah. November. That's it's, the problem. Yeah, it's interesting. The climate imposes me to make dry wines. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I mean, you, you work with, I think it's eight different grape varieties, you know, Oak Serroir, Chardonnay, Gewürz, Termina, Muscat, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, Riesling. I think I've got them all. Yeah. Um, I, I just wondered, how do you decide what to plant where? I mean, it's partly historical, isn't it? But it's also, so the question, do you look at a, a soil type in a particular vineyard and think, okay, Gewürz is great there. Pinot Gris is great there. Riesling's great there. I know the Grand Cru have certain stipulations. There are, what, only five uh, grape varieties. It, well, if you include Silvana, yeah? Five yeah, with Silvana. Yeah, yeah with Silvana. Spot, yeah, yeah, in one spot. So, you know, four plus a little bit, yeah. really, that you can use to make Grand Cru. But how do you decide what to plant where? Actually, it's six now. Because ah. in 2022, yeah. Grand Cru are now allowed to make some red wines. A Pinot Noir. And the Kirchberg de Bar with Pinot Noir. Ah, very good. It was just passed, the Vogue just passed uh, a few months ago. Yeah. So tell me what you, how you decide where you plant, what you plant where. 
Well, you, you obviously every grape variety uh, requires certain, you know, uh, geological, agronomical uh, characteristic to perform better. Um, also, with the climate, uh, you have to look at, you know, the, the, the rainfall pattern, the heat, and all this. Uh, which means that some grape variety are not, not planted anymore in some areas. Like in, a, in an early ripening place, I would not plant anymore the, the, the Auxerrois, for example, or the Musca Autonelle, which can mm. ripen way too quickly and lose too much acidity. And you move more toward maybe Pinot Blanc or uh, the Musca Petit Grain, uh, Musca d'Alsace. Uh, maybe some red uh, grapes like Pianois would become more and more planted in some vineyard uh, where before it would not have enough you know, sunshine and heat to ride the tannin. But then you also look at the characteristic of the wine you obtain. Mm. Um, uh, there are some vineyards where Pinot Gris uh, used to make fantastic uh, wine, but today, if you keep them there, you end up every year with a wine which would be like a late harvesting style. And if you cannot sell this wine, well, yeah. You're in trouble, you know. So have you have you pulled some vineyards out and replaced? Or have you, for example, pulled out Pinot Gris and replaced it with Riesling? Uh, yes, in one vineyard, but not because it was not adapted, just because we didn't have enough Riesling and we had a bit almost too much Pinot Gris in that vineyard. You know, I'm thinking about the Clovis Dulo, uh, uh, for example. Yeah. But the Pinot Gris is still very much adapted over there because yeah. we can achieve fantastic uh, acidity balance and all this. It's more a question of inside organization, not great variety adaptation. But if I take another vineyard, for example, uh, I'll take the Goldert, which mm. is the Grand Cru from Gebershwir, my father's family's uh, uh, old vineyard. We took the bold decision last year to rip out all the Gebershwir from that vineyard to replace it only by the Muscat Petit Grain. Why? Because in that vineyard, to make a great Gebrus Truminer, you need a fantastic ripening of the skin, you know. So you have to harvest late. Mm. It means you end up with a wine which is always a kind of late harvest in style. Mm. And in today's climate, we, we could see that uh, in the last 10, 12 years, you end up with too much power, too much richness, not enough acidity to get the kind of balance you want. And also you make a wine that very few people drink today. You know, who eats Wawa every lunch and every dinner? You know, I, well, I mean so, nobody. I mean, I, I, it's funny. I, I I went to the sort of French restaurant you're describing. I went to one in London recently, which is famous for that, and it's very old-fashioned, traditional. And it's the first time I've eaten that kind of food for probably ten years, <laughs> with, with exactly what you're describing. It's nice. You, but... you still have it, but it's much mm. much less. So yeah. on the other hand, the Muscat Petit Grain, which is planted in the south of France, is able to make wine which extraordinary aromatics, fantastic acidity, at a very low alcohol level, which mm. is more like between 12, 12 and a half, mm. definitely below, way below 13%. Mm. So these wines, which are much drier, elegant, they still reflect the potential of the Grand Cru. Mm. The wines have a you know, 30 years plus longevity uh, uh, in the bottle. But this wine, for me, is more adapted into, in today's uh, 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 way people drink wines you know so mm -hmm. for me there is no hesitation the the and i love givers to see mm -hmm. i will still keep givers to in all the vineyard where i think it's much better adapted you know yeah like hanks for example or clovins where mm -hmm. i can get that tannic ripeness and still have mm -hmm. the good acidity uh, i need mm 
But sometimes in some vineyards you have to make a choice. And that choice can hurt because you kind of you have to change a tradition in some way and create a new one, you know. And that's called adapting to the climate, adapting to what also people want to drink. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned your son, Pierre-Emile. He's the 13th generation. He joined the business, I think, in 2019. I mean, does he want to change anything? I mean, I know he worked at DLC, didn't he? Domaine Le Conti in Burgundy as, a, uh, as, a, as, a, as an intern. Um, do, can you see him focusing a bit more on Pinot Noir or the things that he wants to change in the way you change things from your dad? Probably, probably. We will have some, um, uh, some vineyards that where if one day we have to... I would say uh, that most great vineyard for Gewürztraminer in Alsace, if I make it simple, they're often planted in kind of red marl limestone soil from the Oligocene period. That's where you find a lot of the Gewürztraminer in the region. Uh, it's, they are also great vineyards where you can probably have fantastic red wines uh, made from Pinot Noir. So it wouldn't surprise me in some of these vineyards in the future, uh, if you want to reduce a little bit the proportion of reverse trimmer, which is a, a grape variety that has a kind of very old image in the region, if you know what I mean, uh, it would probably replace it with some uh, more red. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would absolutely have no problem with it. For me, the grape variety is only the tool you use to extract, express a grape vineyard. Mm. You know? Uh, nobody knows what was planted in Chateau Latour for mm. 400 years ago, or even maybe sometime in some great... Well, pro- pro- the answer is probably not much Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah, or even in Alsace. We don't yeah. know what was planted in our best vineyard. Mm. So as long as this grape variety is adapted to the place mm. and you do and you cultivate it properly, you should make a great wine. You know, So changing the grape to make something more adapted to the demand, I have no uh, uh, scruple or, or problem with that, as long as the wine is good. Mm. That's- and as long as you choose a grape variety which is capable to express the quality of a grape vineyard, so mm. you know, a small bunch, mm. a, cert- a certain uh, taste and character into the grapes, uh, mm. a grape variety that doesn't overproduce, mm. you know. Uh, you mentioned Sylvaner before. Mm. Sylvaner is a fantastic grape, but it's difficult to make on a regular basis mm. in a lot of vineyards a grape wine with Sylvaner because but- genetically, it's a high-yielding grape. Mm. See? So it, you might find fantastic Sylvaner in some very small spot, mm. but generally speaking, it's a grape variety which you would struggle to make constantly great Grand Cru uh, yeah. uh, out of it. You know? Yeah, that's a very interesting thing. And also Sylvaner would be quite difficult to sell, wouldn't it? I mean, it's not, it's, yes. it's, not, it's not a famous grape. Then you enter into the subject where uh, do if it's still good to write the grape variety on the label, mm. see? Mm. I give you an example. We uh, we have a vineyard called Wartenberg in Winsenheim. It's a fantastic place. And for many, many years, we, we would blend our Auxerrois Pinot Blanc we have in the vineyard with the Auxerrois Pinot Blanc from the Valley Floor and just mm. make a very simple Pinot Blanc. Mm. Mm. But the, the quality of the grapes from that vineyard, it, we decided uh, last year with a very small crop, it's really a pity to blend it with something more generic. Mm-hmm. You know, let's make it a part. And we made it. And the wine is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> if you read Pinot Blanc Auxerrois on the label, you automatically say, well, it's just an Auxerrois compared mm-hmm. to the Riesling or Pinot Gris from the same vineyard. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be as good. It should be much cheaper. No, well, the yields are actually the same as the, mm-hmm. the, the Pinot Gris, even lower than the Riesling. Mm-hmm. So here, the name of the grape variety becomes a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Listen, final question. I could talk to you all day. I mean, you've got so many interesting things to say about Alsace, but I just wanted to ask you a little bit about 
how do you get away from wine? I mean, you know, is wine your life or the other things that interest you? <laughs> I know you like going to Scotland. You're one of the few Frenchmen who likes to go on holiday to Scotland, right? <laughs> well, you know, Alsace is very hot. And we had this summer almost like uh, eight weeks with temperatures above 30, you know? Well. Uh, I know UK broke a few records of heat mm. uh, this summer, but we broke those uh, a long time ago. And mm. Alsace can be really, really hot in summer. So... Uh, as a wine grower, sometimes we're very happy to go into rain and cold weather and wind, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, being able to put the, the fire on in the middle of summer and drink a nice <laughs> glass of whiskey. So, that's, Is that how you get away from wine? Go to Scotland? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. Mm. Yeah, you know, my wife is Scottish, so that's how yeah. I discovered Scotland. Mm. And I really love the, the, the countryside, the people. It, it's a fantastic place. So, And you eat pretty well today in Scotland. You know, You've eaten very well in Scotland. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Olivia, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your incredible knowledge of Alsace. There's so much more we could talk about, but it's been brilliant. Lovely to see you, and I hope to see you soon, either in London or in Alsace. Absolutely. Cheers. Fascinating and profound man, Olivier, with a remarkable command of English. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the brilliant Sonal Holland, MW, the most important wine figure in India. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week. <laughs>